1: Welcome to the start of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, so happy to have all of you with us. Um, I hope your weekend went well. I hope you all stayed healthy. I hope you wore masks everywhere uh, you went, Um, and that you're ready for another week of, I hope, uh, interesting conversations on Political Rewind. Um, You know, uh, 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 Amelia Brock reminded me of something that I think we all realize, that Last week, when uh, Kamala, Harris, uh, Kamala Harris was sworn in as vice president, uh, she represented any number of firsts. She's the first black woman in her role, the first woman as vice president, first of Southeast Asian descent. And her story represents something even more important. She's the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants stepping into the second highest position in, uh, in our government. It illustrates how both first and second generation Americans are a growing political and cultural force in politics, in our cultural life. And it puts a spotlight on what is sure to be a major component of President Biden's administration, this immigration reform plan that he rolled out, I think much to the surprise of many people, on his very first day in office. We're going to talk a bit about immigration and what President Biden would like to accomplish, how it will impact the state of Georgia, the challenges he will face in trying to uh, get a new bill passed, uh, because when you look at this in a historical light, it is one of the toughest pieces of legislation a president can take on. Uh, and then we're going to talk a bit more about uh, focusing very narrowly on even more news about what happened when Donald Trump tried to overthrow the results of the election here in Georgia and the ongoing consequences of that. So we've got all of that and much more on today's Political Rewind and a terrific panel to um, talk about those issues. Uh, Jim Galloway is with us. He, of course, is now retired from his job as a lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and is... I'm sure searching for something to do next, but I know he has plans. I know you have big plans, Galloway, so I shouldn't even tease you about that. Welcome.
2: Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much. My most immediate plan is notice that I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt. (laughs)
3: Uh,
2: I am 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 going. vaccinated
1: uh, as soon as we hang up here this morning. Congratulations, Mr. Galloway. Is Judy getting her vaccine too? Uh, She got hers maybe two weeks ago uh, through the school system. Oh, okay. Terrific. Oh, terrific. Well, congratulations. Um, We are going to continue, of course, on Political Rewind to track the situation with vaccines in Georgia, and uh, we'll uh, be doing that throughout the weeks ahead. Um, We're also joined today by Mariella Romero, who is the Community Empowerment Director at Univision Atlanta. Mariella, you have a long career As a journalist, you work for CNN, you've covered uh, stories literally all over uh, the the world. I did not know until I looked at your biography uh, recently, that you're also the recipient of like 23 Emmy Awards. Is that right?
0: That is correct. That is correct. (laughs) Thank you for mentioning that. I feel a little bit embarrassed, but uh, yes, uh, and, and it is, you know, a group effort. I owe this to my colleagues and collaborators
1: at Univision. Well, it's very impressive, and we are really happy uh, that you've become part of the Political Rewind team. Thanks for being here uh, today. We're joined, too, today, Mm -hmm. and he hasn't been with us for a while, by Charles Cook. Uh, Chuck Cook is an immigration attorney, a very well-known immigration attorney. He's the former president of the American Immigration Lawyer, so has uh, great stature within uh, his Community, I'm glad you're back, Chuck. Uh, we you were sort of on the sidelines during a lot of the election stuff, but it's great to have you with us.
3: It's great to be back, and of course to get my ego boosted every time I come on the show. Thank you, Bill.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we're also joined by, by uh, Leo Smith. Uh, Leo is a longtime Republican consultant. He worked on diversity engagement for the state Republican. Uh, party, and uh, now uh, has a company called Engage, the engaged Futures Group. Uh, Leo, I think it's fair to say that now you're working on politics, policy, government relations, but your effort continues to be, you, you've always been focused on figuring out how to bring disparate groups of people together to get things accomplished. Is that a fair way to say it?
4: That is a very fair way to say it, Bill, and I'm also very thankful for both Mariella and Chuck, whom I've called on in the past for helping advice on responding to communities in need. Thank you both. You're wonderful
1: people. Um, Well, I'm glad that we all know each other on the show today. Um, Jim, let's start by talking about what I think was somewhat surprising. On on January 20th... um, uh, Joe Biden sat in the Oval Office and he signed uh, lots of executive orders, many of which overturned things that President Trump had put in place. Um, and he, But he did something, he, he did a few things by executive order uh, on immigration. So, for instance... He stopped the work, at least temporarily, he said, on the border wall. He lifted a travel ban on people from some of the predominantly Muslim countries that the Trump administration had put into place. He reversed plans to exclude people uh, in the country illegally from the 2020 census. The Trump administration was trying to have them not counted. He uh, he took some action on, on DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and other things. So all of that is well and good, and we can talk about the implications of some of those things. But then he made an even larger uh, statement, Jim. He's committed to a major overhaul of immigration laws in the United States, and I think— it caught a lot of people off guard because that's a big, big lift to take on as your first action as president. Yes,
2: yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is. Uh, it, generally speaking, it, uh, it, it's it's you. You have when a, when a president takes office for the first time, uh, he's at the height of his height of his political influence. I think it's fair to say, uh, and usually you choose your 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 biggest the biggest item on your wish list. And and immigration is is on Biden's. Uh, It's been you know, it's been it's just been a third rail on the Republican side uh, uh, in 2007, 2013, I believe. Uh, But I I do uh, a couple of thoughts here. Uh, Number one, I think this reflects very deeply the 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 dependence that the Democratic Party has on Hispanic voters and and uh, where they fell short. Uh, in 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 2020, uh, we're 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 we we're in Texas in some very heavy, heavily uh, Hispanic uh, counties there in South Florida, and and uh, and I think they lost four seats in in California, so 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 there's that there is there is some repair work to be done. Now the the problem for Biden comes is that that the package this huge package that he's he's got it's going to depend a lot on Republican help, and. The problem with that is that we still have Donald Trump in the mix. and you I mean you saw him making noise over over the last over the last 10 days or, or, or well since since 2020 uh, and he is he is, he, he is he is d- determined to continue being a force in the Republican Party. And if that's the case, you're going to find it hard to find uh, Republican partners in the Senate to move this legislation, I think.
1: Yeah. Um, we we can talk about the politics of this in, in, a, in a little bit more depth. But Chuck, let's go to just the major uh, uh, proposals that are part of all this. Number one, I think the most breathtaking of them, uh, many people would say, is that his bill would give legal status, first legal status, but then eventually a path to citizenship to anyone in the United States before January 1st of this year. That's we think some 11 plus million people, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, and it will also reduce the time that family members was, must wait outside the United States to get green cards, which will allow them to come in. There's more to it, but that is a very sweeping uh, a plan. Uh, Chuck? Yeah, it's, uh,
3: it's big, but you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. Um, and both of those issues were previously supported by Republicans. Uh, They Mm -hmm. supported it in 1986 under the Reagan amnesty, and they supported it in 1998 when Congress created something called the V visa, which allowed uh, media family members of people that are being applied for to wait in the United States. Uh, Both of those programs have long since expired. So the reality is this is nothing new. Uh, It's just that a lot of people have forgotten or weren't alive when when these provisions went into place the first time. But this uh, is not a surprise that this bill – was introduced he promised it, and the uh, a lot of the immigration activists who worked very hard on this election I mean a lot of people put time in DACA kids, for example, were out in en masse all around the United States uh, trying to help this particular ticket and This is the payback to that, whether or not Congress ultimately gets to get to it i 've got my own opinion on that, but the reality is it 's a big bill um, but it It can fix a lot of the problems that both parties use against each other. And frankly, I'm just tired of not fixing it personally.
1: (laughs) Leo?
4: Yeah, I I think that it's it's time we fix it. I think from Rubio to Senator Tom Cotton and others. uh, Right here in in our state of Georgia, uh, David Perdue has constantly looked for a way of fixing it. That is in front of the curtains rather than behind the curtains. We make this assumption about, as uh, Chuck, uh, just, uh, he just spoke to, um, that you know, we have these reasons at times in American history why we really, really want to emphasize uh, immigration. And just like the 96 Olympics, we know that we were more liberal with immigration uh, at that time as because we had certain needs for skilled labor, unskilled labor in America. Let's be upfront about that. I, one of the things I like about David Perdue and Tom uh, Cotton's argument on how that should be done is the RAISE Act, the point system, about what skill sets do we need in America. Let's be upfront in that discussion about that, and I think that uh will get uh, Bill passed on uh, more um, –
1: um responsibly um you know mariella one of the things that's so interesting about this coming out on the first day of his administration is it isn't as if joe biden had talked a lot about fixing immigration during his campaign it was not a, I mean, unless i missed it and, and i don't think i did it was not something that he showcased throughout his campaign for president well uh,
0: the the surrogate of his campaign did especially in Latino media. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Latinos were counting on something being done in immigration. And I think also when uh, President Biden uh, signed those executive orders and and many of them tackle immigration, they, he acknowledged this country as a nation of immigrants. One of the things that was most notable to the immigrant community is that he, in his proposed bill, he will remove the word "alien" from immigration laws, and you know we have heard about illegal, illegals, illegals for four years, and that is very hurting to the to the immigrant community. And I think by him um, doing something like this. Um, you know, the language matters. He also is showing, uh, you know, his bold vision for for immigration reform. Um, It's also important because his vice president is uh, the daughter of immigrants. So I think for the uh, activists on immigration, like Charles Cook and the DACA kids, uh, it it is a a, a very hopeful sign.
1: So, um, Jim Galloway, let's just, you know, Chuck has already mentioned the Simpson-Mazzoli Act of 1986, which is what President Reagan uh, signed on to and got a lot of pushback. I mean, there were people who were stunned that this conservative Republican president would, in fact, uh, support uh, some reform of our immigration laws. Um, although it's a much more complex story than that. He was really looking at the way that Cuban boat people were being treated. He wasn't kind of thinking of of Mexican immigrants coming across the border, but that's another story entirely. Uh, So, Jim, so let's look at more recent times. President George W. Bush tried to pass immigration reform. He wanted a sweeping bill. He was a Texan. He understood and was empathetic to the concerns of the Hispanics, Uh, ...in Texas and those he saw who crossed the border to look for refuge in the United States. And uh, he got pushback from both Democrats and Republicans. And it led, uh, Jim, to one of the most uh, infamous, I suppose, incidents of a Republican United States senator, Saxby Chambliss, who supported the bill and the way he was received at the state convention, GOP convention in 2007 the year that he had signed on to that measure.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got a, just a, uh, uh, and, uh, I think I'm, I'm a bit of a pack wrap. I, I can probably still dig up the audio. Of 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 the, the reception <laughs> that he got, uh, I, I believe it was I, I think it was Columbus. It may have been Augusta. Uh, he was preceded wow. by Johnny Isaacson, and and uh, I think Isaacson uh, wisely stayed away from the topic. Shambliss, uh got up and said uh, about the need to uh, the need to include uh, more uh, more more immigrant labor uh, for farms. I mean I mean it look this is uh, immigration is a is a is just a a a very very necessary thing for georgia agriculture and uh uh this was this was kind of the 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 first signal that we were getting we, we were developing a, a republican party uh that was uh that was very focused on nationalism on uh, uh with a big strain of nativism if you will uh, so it was. Uh, then, then, then you remember we had another uh, attempt over in Obama in 2013, where where Mary, uh, Marco Rubio uh, was was hung out on the issue. Uh, an, another lesson for Republicans not to touch that. So we'll we'll see what this uh, what this uh, 2021 version brings.
0: And also, Bill, um, I think it was important for Biden as well. to to show right off the bat that his administration was going to be different on immigration than Barack Obama because the Latino community, the immigrant community, felt betrayed by how the Obama administration uh, handled immigration reform because it was one of the biggest promises of President Obama when he was in the campaign trail. And later he was, uh, you know, known as the... uh, enforcer of, of deportation, like the president who deported more people. Uh, and of course, Obama did that to work with the Republicans, but it, it did not work. And many, many families suffered. So I think also for Joe Biden, it was important to make a statement that it was different from President Obama. Um, <laughs>
1: Chuck, go, go ahead, Chuck.
3: Yeah, just a couple things. Uh, Marietta, the word you were looking for is deporter-in-chief, is how President Obama is referred to among the community. Um, And just briefly on, uh, you know, thank goodness that um, um, we no longer have to hear about the Raise Act from Senator Perdue and Cotton, which would have cut legal immigration by 50%. That that literally never saw a co-sponsor. But what's really important about this bill that he's put is, is he actually put a bill in, something that President Obama never did. Uh, and putting a bill forward as a, as a starting point is vitally important to see where people are. I would tell you, from my, from my perspective, and talk to people on the Capitol Hill about this, if you put that bill on the floor of the Senate today without reservation and said, who will support this bill, you would get over 50 votes just today. You would get 50 votes on that bill because there are 50 senators that want to fix this issue. Um, unfortunately, you can't pass a bill with 50 votes unless you go through reconciliation. Uh, and that's really the stopping point, because basically this bill passed the House last year or two years ago. So it's, it, it's, it's going to pass the House again. It's, it's where in the fight this will be. But legal, having a program where people can get right with the law, a pathway to legality, the vast majority of people will never naturalize. They'll never vote in elections. but they. They have now been here on average 20 years. They are integral parts of our societies and our families. We have so many mixed status families. We just need to fix this finally. But one last thing, Bill, one of the, actually the key components of this bill is something nobody's talking about because it's so weedy that it doesn't, nobody understands it. But it's really this. There is a law that says that if you came into the country without papers, you came undocumented, you have to leave the country for 10 years before you can fix your status, whether you're married to a citizen, you have kids. This bill just deletes that, just literally deletes that one, two-sentence purveys. And that alone, you wouldn't need legalization for over half a million people. So that immediately reduces the number by half just by deleting that silly provision that was put in in 1996. So there's, there's lots of good stuff that you could piecemeal this bill with. But frankly, as somebody who's been involved in this issue for 30 years, it was exciting to see. Uh,
2: Okay, Chuck, let me let me if I can press you on that. Okay, you're the one who's who's talked to members of Congress on that. Okay, if if you were if you were were trying to get up to 60 votes in the Senate, what provisions do you think stay, and what provisions might get dumped? What, What might get sold off?
3: Well, I think you have to look at 2013, uh, Mr. Galloway, and look at the 67 votes that that bill got, uh, which was essentially this bill, uh, not Mm -hmm. really different at all. Um, It got 67 votes because it added massive amounts of spending at the border. So what you could add to the bill to get votes on the other parts of that bill is substantial amounts of border spending. Now, the thing is, which is different from 2013, is we've already spent massive amounts at the border over the last four years, uh, and uh, literally didn't reduce legal immigration at all. We did reduce illegal immigration. We reduced legal immigration dramatically, but not illegal immigration. Uh, that number's been pretty constant now for over a decade because of demographics, which we've talked about on the show before. But I think you have to focus more on enforcement mechanisms, and, and, and really, the key part of this bill... Is missing. And what's missing is future flow. Congress keeps trying to fix the problems of the past without trying to address the problems of the future. Where will our immigrants come from? What type of immigrants? Should we have a point system? Should we have a system that, that rewards accomplishments abroad? Should we reward people that can bring jobs and investment? That is actually missing from this bill, but you still have to fix these problems from the past. That should be the easy part. We should be having a conversation about where we're going forward. And unfortunately, uh, nobody, as you've pointed out, nobody wants to have that conversation because they get booted conferences.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Leo, um, right now with a United States Senate that cannot even agree on rules for how they will conduct their session, uh, which is blocking everything from Biden confirmations to moving ahead on the impeachment trial, to taking up uh, legislation like this bill, um, I think we're seeing that almost every battle that's moving forward is going to be uh, filled still in the Senate with toxicity, partisan toxicity. And um, it's interesting that Chuck points out that Republicans have supported a measure like this in the past. I just wonder if they'll support a Biden Democratic measure like this when it eventually comes forward.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it was, you know, Chuck mentioned the point system again. I mean, I don't think it's gone away because Purdue has gone away. I think that's going to be heavily argued in every senator's voice now with the Senate having the numbers that it has is going to be extremely important. Anybody can make an amendment that's going to be impactful um, to anything um, uh, presented. So this, this is going to be really, really a highly, highly, um, highly debated issue. I think that also that there's some things we're not looking at that, that are going to be spoken loudly on. And that's the Congressional Black Caucus when they start to weigh in um, from those early meetings they had pre-January uh, um, runoff with, govern- I mean, with President Biden. Biden. When he said Latinos are going to be my priority, you African Americans need to sort of take a back seat for a second and understand why I'm doing this. And I think that CBC Congressional Black Caucus is going to weigh on this weigh in on this heavily.
1: Um, Mariella, let's talk about the uh, uh, the electoral politics of this for just a minute. It's something that I'd really love to get your take on. Um, we know that Joe Biden uh, in in the overall uh, Hispanic Latino community uh, did well uh, on November third. He, according to AP's vote cast, which is essentially their exit poll uh, arm, 63 percent of Latinos voted for Joe Biden compared to 35 percent of um, uh, voters who went for Trump. And and uh, but Trump did. He narrowed the margin in some swing states. In Nevada, he, in Nevada, he got a bump from Latino men who gave him like almost forty percent of the vote. Um, he, as as uh, Jim pointed out, he lost Florida. The Hispanic vote went against him. Texas didn't support Hispanics. Didn't support. so. My point being, Mariella, it's it's one thing to say, "Wow, Biden got." Uh, uh, an overwhelming majority of Hispanic votes nationwide, but he's still got to look carefully at his ability in swing states and for Democrats moving forward to do something to assure Hispanic voters that he understands their needs.
0: Correct. And I think this has been the election that has proven for once and for all that Latinos do not vote for the same issues in every state. We are coming from different parts of the uh, Latin America. We are different with different needs. Uh, We need to discuss different topics that are important to those uh, communities. We are so diverse. We are not a monolithic block. So I think it was a lesson for Democrats in um, Texas, um, in in Nevada. It was a, a lesson for Republicans in Arizona. And in Georgia, too, uh, because, uh, you know, Georgia went blue, and thanks to a lot of the engagement between the Latino community. So I think this also is an opportunity for Biden, uh, not just to uh, tackle immigration reform in the U.S., but also to repair relationships in Latin America. I think that is critical, especially in the topics of democracy. We have seen what, uh, you know, the, the damage that uh, demagogues can do to democracy. And this has been the story in Latin America for years, for decades. We have the examples of uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil and Manuel López Obrador in Mexico. And uh, with Donald Trump in the U.S. as the president, we saw how fragile democracy is in our country. I think a new era on uh, United States and Latin America relations must take uh, must make the protection of democracy in our hemisphere a priority. And, and I think you know it's a tall order for this president because of so many issues that we are uh, tackling at the same time. But if he wants to to unify. Uh, the country, the world also is hoping uh, that Joe Biden can, can be that force to unify the world too.
1: Um, Jim, one last uh, note on this subject before we take a break. Uh, you on the show on Friday made a point about, um, uh, or, or earlier last week, I'm sorry, made a point about the fact that uh, we now had David Scott, uh, was going to be the chair of the House Agriculture Committee. And, and I wonder to what extent in that role uh, Scott will be able to work with f- Georgia farmers to talk to them about the importance of this kind of legislation for, uh, for them uh, to have the labor they need uh, to harvest their crops.
2: You know it it's it, that's that's a good point. I mean uh, David Scott is a, is is a congressman from Atlanta. And and he will be in charge of uh one half of the legislative effort uh vis-a-vis agriculture in the in the entire United States. But you have to you do have to re, re, remember a very uh risky play that David Scott made back in in uh in 2017 when Donald Trump was b- building his cab- cabinet. And he named Sonny Perdue Secretary of Agriculture, and when it came to Sonny's uh, uh, confirmation hero, uh, hearing uh, uh, in the Senate, uh, you, you remember who was right by his side? It was David Scott. So, so there's 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 a conduit there. I think there is a, there is an acceptance of that. Uh, and and the other the other thing I would remember remind you of is is uh, another very important vo- voice in. Uh, in in uh, agriculture in Congress is Sanford Bishop, out of Albany. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's Democrat it's uh, uh, so exactly. So it's not it's not uh, that that's not too. Uh, I think it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. But I think I think David Scott has got some room to maneuver there. Um, Leo,
1: quick comment before a break.
4: Yeah, and Bill, I think both you and Jim are alluding to the fact that both Sanford Bishop is considered a friend to conservatives uh, amongst Democrats, as is uh, David Scott in recent years. So I think that's an example where the power of conservative vision for the state, especially, will continue to play out no matter how these politics are changing.
1: All right. Um, oh, go
3: ahead, Chuck. You Just want to get one a final thing, word? One in? thing that I think a, a lot of these folks will like about this bill, there's a provision in the bill that allows states up to 10,000 of their own visas. They, a governor, for example, could say, I need 10,000 workers this year. And this bill would allow, under federal law, the governor to designate the process, the timing, and the number and location of those visas. So it's, it's very much – it has a lot of different stuff in it, including that provision, which we call the Utah provision, because the idea originated with the former governor of Utah.
1: Oh, my. You know, Lawyer Cook, this is why we love having you on the show. I had not (laughs) seen that provision, and I will bet you an awful lot of people who've been reading about this bill. But that is a very powerful incentive for Democratic and Republican governors uh, to uh, look at this bill with more uh, appreciation and care. All right. uh, We got to get to a break. Uh, We'll come back with more on Political Rewind. Immigration attorney Chuck Cook, Univision's Mariela Romero, Republican strategist uh, Leo Smith, and the soon-to-be inoculated and now retired political writer <laughs> of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, our friend Jim Galloway, uh, who does join us now on our Monday shows, uh, even as he's retired from the paper. Uh, Jim, let, let's talk about this revelation. The New York, you know, we we keep hearing. I, I, Let me start by saying, I do think there are an awful lot of people who would like to put Donald Trump in the rearview mirror sooner rather than later. And I think that will happen, although certainly the impeachment trial coming up the week of February 9th is going to make that difficult. But there are still things that resonate here in Georgia that relate to Trump. And one of them is a report that The New York Times uh, issued on Friday it turns out that in, uh, among all the ways that Trump tried to overturn the outcome of the Georgia election, he decided that when his acting attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, refused to uh, co- go to the Georgia legislature and insist that, that fraud had given Biden the election here and that legislators should give their electoral votes to Trump instead, Trump considered firing him and putting in his place um, a kind of an unassuming Justice Department official named Jeffrey Clark, who had been encouraging Trump to take this action. It's, here's what's mind boggling about this to me, Jim. All of these efforts to overturn the results in Georgia would not have given Donald Trump the White House. He still would have lost the election. I don't understand the obsessive focus on Georgia.
2: I think I, I, I think you asked that earlier, and I, but and, and I've been thinking about it. I think I do have an answer for that. Uh, number one, in, in, in terms of uh, cracking a state, uh, Georgia would you know on paper is looks like it would be the is easiest. You know, it has has a governor who is uh, who is who is obligated to the president, uh, uh, a solid uh, a solid Republican gov- uh, government. And and I think what you're what you see what you what you what we saw uh, President he when you started stampede you don't you don't need every cow in the herd you just to need to start a couple cow a couple head of cattle running and then everybody jo- joins them uh, uh, you know th- th- it's it, this is uh, uh, it, it's this New York Times story is a bit in the weeds but I think it's Really, really fascinating. Uh, I, I will tell you, just before uh, the January fifth vote and, and the January six uh, riot at the U.S. Capitol, uh, something very unusual happened here. You had uh, a Northern uh, U.S. Attorney, uh, B.J. Pack, representing the Northern Circuit, just drop drop his uh, uh, drop his pen and walk out of out of the office, and. We have. Uh, I reached out to him immediately after. I, I know uh, many people over at the AJC did the same. I'm assuming other people have too. And he has been just absolute mum. Uh, he's just been absolutely quiet on this. Uh, it, of course, there's there's the there's the, uh, the 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 political blowback that might come come if he if he if he actually describes why he did it. But it, there's also the, the the possibility that he foresees himself as a witness. In, a, in in an impeachment hearing, and if you're going to be called as a witness, you don't want previous statements out there. You 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 want you want you want the first words out of your mouth to be heard by by a, a Senate jury.
1: Um. Well, Leo, uh, what Jim is referring to is we we now know that the Justice Department Inspector General is investigating why out of nowhere B.J. Pack called all of his. Associates into the office one day and said, "It's been nice working with you. I'm gone." And of course, that investigation is uh, going to look into questions as to whether Trump really put so much pressure on him that he felt he had to get out of there fast.
4: Yeah, as a as a sort of a bellwether, weather to BJ Pack's disposition, we remember that. Um, Balky Vu was the closest we had to a Republican objector to Donald Trump, uh, to the, as he was an elector. Uh, who worked as a staffer for B.J. Pack, and he, of course, said, "No, I'm going to resign from my role as an elector if I have to choose Donald Trump in 2016." So you know, we we can get an idea of the principal person that B.J. Pack is, and he uh, happily uh, shared over the weekend that he uh, is looking forward to a new law firm that he's joining and and having a regular life. So and, and he's, as Jim is saying, he's not really speaking to why because I think that all those things that Jim brought up are are, are real things in play. The pressure from uh, President Trump to uh, use Georgia as his hold. Um, And then I think the the complicity that other Republican leaders had to sort of say, look, we got to keep Georgia sort of uh, hours just for the—because it could, like, create this confidence for the rest of the country. Georgia is a bellwether state from being a Republican donor state to now um, having lost a lot of that power by being a battleground state. So the fight is still on here, and Georgia is still important. And so I think that's why some people played the hand that Donald Trump gave them and fought uh, in a very inappropriate way um, to, to pressure people.
3: You know, uh, Bill, one of the things that I've known about B.J. Pack when he was a state legislator is that B.J. doesn't make rash decisions, Um, probably why he was such an effective and excellent U.S. attorney. I mean, he really fit the profile extraordinarily well. Um, There's something going on here. Uh, There's clearly something going on here. Uh, it, It appears even from his statement this weekend about joining the new law firm, that was not set up in advance. That was something that happened after he departed. Uh, I, for one, am certainly looking forward to his future Senate testimony about whatever it is happened here that would cause him to act like this. Mariella?
0: Yeah, um, I believe also this is this highlights what I was talking about earlier about uh, the, um, the the frailties of democracy, and if we don't have, if if our institutions do not have the people with values and they don't take it upon themselves to, uh, you know, to honor uh, the traditions and to comply with the law, democracy fails. You know, uh, our institutions are as powerful as the people who work in them. And and we are the people. So um, I, I believe the overall conversation is how to protect our democracy. And, and that is why, uh, for example, campaigns that we do uh, in the media on you know, the side of community empowerment is to have uh, civic engagement uh, with, with our community. What does it mean to to be part of the political system? Why do you want to serve and uh, be part of the system? Because we are the ones who can protect it. And I think that is, to me, the most valuable lesson about what happened during the, the Trump administration and, 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 you know, all the things that we are learning that happen uh, in, in our institutions.
1: I think that's such a fascinating comment because as time goes by, don't you think, Mariella, what we're going to see is the world divided into those people who – there are several different ways it can divide. People who said, I can't do this, I'm leaving – I can't be part of this, I'm leaving. People who said, no, no, I'm ambitious, I'm staying with it. And then I guess there's that other interesting group of people who said, I need to be out of here, but if I don't stick around, I'm afraid things could get worse. And, you know, I think we're going to start seeing the Trump administration through that lens as we move forward and hear from all of those people.
0: You are absolutely correct. And, and, you know, that is a comment that I always had when uh, people in the Trump administration left because, uh, you know, something outrageous that the president did. And my, my comment always was, the people who were, you know, applauding that, I would say, but who is guarding now that side? Because that happened in my country, in Venezuela. When Hugo Chavez wasn't in, in power, a lot of people left. And then, you know, people loyal to him overtook Our institutions.
3: You know, Bill, interesting. This is actually going on right now at the State Department. Uh, The State Department suffered uh, probably the most massive set of losses uh, beginning in the early part of the Trump administration. A lot of Foreign Service officers simply just couldn't abide the policies, so they left. And uh, there was actually an article in, in, I think it was the Post or the Times this weekend, about the officers are now coming back to their jobs. And the question is, what about the folks that stayed that manned the fort that kind of held held their ground for the last four years on some of these issues? Where where do they end up when everybody else kind of fled away for either conscience or other reasons? So this is a real discussion I imagine we'll be having throughout government. Um, And uh, a lot of respect to those that stayed with it and said,
1: I'm just going to do my job. All right. We got to take our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Um, welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. Um, Jim Galloway, really quickly, uh, I want because I want to turn to uh, something different as soon as we can. Uh, there's now all this talk about how Donald Trump may be looking at starting a new party, breaking away from the Republicans. And uh, I bring that up really on this show only because uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Congresswoman now Marjorie Taylor Greene, Uh, put out a tweet the other day that suggests that uh, she's all for that possibility. Here's what she says. Quote, here's a warning the GOP needs to hear. The vast majority of Republican voters, volunteers, and donors are no longer loyal to the GOP and candidates. Just because they have an R by their name, their loyalty now lies with Donald J. Trump. Uh, Jim, uh, a, a new party in politics, and Marjorie Taylor Greene's all for it. Uh, Yeah, I think she's
2: going to be disappointed uh, because uh, I I, I think that was – I think uh, the uh, the, uh, – Donald Trump floated the idea of of a patriot party, uh, I think uh, uh, pretty much for the purpose of a – to to support a a chairmanship race in Arizona. And he has since – Backed off that a little bit I, because he realizes look, if I mean, number one, if number one, uh, he, he'd be giving up an awful lot of, of machinery, he'd have to build something new entirely by himself. I don't, and I don't think he's got the energy for that. Uh, and his power is lies in the ability to split to, to threaten to split the, 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 the GOP, uh, it, it doesn't yeah. go beyond that.
1: Okay, uh, I just thought it would be interesting. We're going to obviously watch how Marjorie Taylor Greene continues the series that she has about the election, who won, who lost, and everything. But you know what? I want to change the subject completely right now. I want to take you back to April 8th, 1974, uh, at, down at the stadium, L.A. Dodgers in town to play the Braves. Here's Vin Scully as Hank Aaron comes to the plate and takes a swing.
3: One ball and no strikes, Aaron waiting, the outfield deep and straight away. Fastball is
1: a high drive into deep left center field. Buckner goes
3: back to the fence It is gone. What a marvelous moment for baseball. What a marvelous moment for Atlanta and the state of Georgia. What a marvelous moment for the country and the world. A black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol. And it is a great moment for all of us and particularly for Henry Aaron, who was met at home plate Not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth.
1: You know, uh, the poem Casey at the Bat got it wrong. There is great joy in baseball. And I wanted to play that, of course, as a tribute to the great Hank Aaron, but also to remind us that there are things we can still take joy from. Just hearing that again, we watch each other on WebEx, as most of you know, and I looked at Chuck Cook as he was listening to that again, and his face just lit up. So did yours, Leo Smith. Uh, It was an extraordinary moment, Leo.
4: I grew up without a TV most of my life. But I heard on radio about this guy, Hank Aaron, you know, having been born in 1964 in a town where I could not play on the white baseball field, even though we were both, you know, desexigation. And I used to get my baseball bat out of the trash can at the white baseball field, hammer it together with a nail and try and be hammering Hank. And my son, 13 years old, yesterday, he and I went to the Braves Stadium to celebrate the life of Hank Aaron. He plays <laughs> baseball because I was inspired by that man. And uh, this is the impact of Hank Aaron. It is uh, just nuanced, and it is in every sector.
3: You know, Bill, I was, uh, I was 11 years old when that happened. I remember where I was sitting uh, in my parents' living room, watching it on television. It was a remarkable experience to a young baseball player like me. You know, I I'm white. I'm not black. I I've never lived the black experience. But I have to tell you, that day, I didn't see any color. It was it just showed possibilities that there is an endless opportunity to exceed and do more than what's been done in the past and uh, we all owe a great debt. Whether you like baseball or not, we all owe a debt to Hank Aaron for what he did for the path that he showed us, and for the, really the love that he gave to all those around him. I shouldn't cry on radio, should I?
1: <laughs> 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 I'd be crying with you, um,
3: brother. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, Mariella, Hank Aaron was uh, well aware of racial prejudice in this country, and he faced it as he approached that record. He wrote about it, in, or he, he gave the New York Times in 1990 an interview looking back, And he uh, said it made him see for the first time a clear picture of what this country was about. He had to go out back doors of ballparks. He had to have a police escort. He was getting threatening letters, which he kept in many cases. He wanted to remind himself of what he'd gone through. Uh, And in 2014, he told USA Today that he believed we're still not far removed from what he was going through when he chased that record. And yet he approached, just social justice, racial justice, with a grace and quiet composure that was a lesson for all of us.
0: You are right. It was a lesson for all of us. I grew up most of my life outside of the United States and watching movies, and, and I didn't realize uh, the, the racial divides uh, that were in this country, because what you see from Hollywood is the possibilities is that everybody— is is getting along and will smith is, is a big star and, and you know it is when you come to this country and you experience what um institutionalism uh, uh, race, how do you say um racism institutionalized has done to maintain communities of color Uh, not achieving their potential. It's when you live in this country that you see it. And when you uh, hear Hank Aaron speak, and like you said, the grace that he uh, lived throughout his life, even though he was a victim of all of those things, it it is something remarkable. And and, and even though I was four years old when that happened, when that audio happened, (laughs) it, 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 it was very touching.
1: Jim, you and I had very different probably baseball experiences. You grew up, I'm sure, watching Hank Aaron. Um, I grew up watching Ernie Banks in Chicago. Uh, And like, you know what, sort of like what Chuck said, I went down to Wrigley Field to see Ernie, the great Ernie Banks, who also dealt with discrimination every day. And I never thought of him as a black or a white guy when I was 10 years old. I thought of him as a great, great baseball player and I don't mean that in the naive way of saying oh I don't see color of course I do but what I saw with Ernie was an incredible baseball player the way many people finally were able to see Hank despite the prejudices that he did face
2: you know i i think i think what uh, one thing we're, we're we're missing here is is that that uh, aaron hit that, that number 715 in a very crucial time uh, april 1974 i was a freshman in college at the time uh, and and what else happened that same year Maynard jackson was elected mayor of, of, of atlanta uh, you had the first big transition on uh, underway in, in racial politics in the south and, and Aaron was a um, part of it in that way.
1: Well, we think fondly of Hank Aaron on this day, as we know the basically the whole world does. Um, thank you all very much for this show today. Uh, Mariela Romero, uh, Leo Smith, uh, Chuck Cook, and Jim Galloway. Hey, tomorrow we've got a really interesting show. Molly Ball of Time Magazine is coming on to talk about her uh, biography of Nancy Pelosi. And I learned things about Pelosi in this book I never knew before. It's going to be, I think, an interesting conversation timed just right. So that's it for us today. I'm Bill Nygut. Until we see you tomorrow, take care, stay healthy, please wear a mask. We'll see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.